my weakest moment I see you Shaking your head in disgrace I can read the disappointment Written all over your face Here come those whispers in my ear Saying who do you think you are Looks like you're on your own from here Cause grace could never reach that far But in the shadow of that shame Brought down by all the blame I hear you call my name Saying it's not over And my heart starts to beat so loud Now drowning out the doubt I'm down but I'm not out There's a war between guilt and grace And they're fighting for a sacred space But I'm living proof Grace wins every time can't describe the way it feels when mercy floods a thirsty soul the broken side begins to heal and grace returns what guilty stole and in the shadow of that shame beat down by all the blame I hear you call my name saying it's not over and my heart starts to beat so loud Drowning out the doubt I'm down but I'm not out There's a war between Girls and race They're fighting for The sacred space But I'm living through Grace wins every time No more lying down In death's defeat Now I'm rising up In fear For the prodigal son, grace wins. For the woman at the well, grace wins. For the blind man and the beggar, grace wins. For always and forever, grace wins. For the lost out on the streets, grace wins. For the worst part of you and me, grace wins. For the thief on the cross, grace wins. For the world that is lost There's a war between guilt and grace They're fighting for a sacred space But I'm living proof Grace wins every time No more lying down in death's defeat Now I'm rising up in victory Please join us as we continue in worship together.
master's understanding is my song and I sing. My hope is in you, Lord. I wait for you and my soul finds rest in my selfishness. You show me I worship you and my Was our strength. 
no word he spoke, his love was shown for all to Jesus. 
thank you for the cross. We thank you for its mighty power in each of our lives. We thank you that by your wounds we are healed. Speak into our hearts and our minds of your deep and abiding love for us, the love that you lavish on us without measure. Help us to know that we are yours. And may we be changed. Amen. Lost are saved, find their way at the sound of your great name. All condemned feel no shame at the sound of your great name. Every
Father, we've come to praise your great name. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the cross, and we thank you that the tomb is empty. In the season of Easter, we are particularly cognizant of the power of the resurrection. We pray that, that as we offer our prayers today, help us to know that you love us and you hear us and you are at work ways beyond us. Father, this morning we want to thank you for the gift of family. This day when we, we give thanks and celebrate mothers, we realize that families come in all shapes and sizes and quite frankly they exist with varying degrees of success. We thank you so much for the gift of the people who have nurtured us and cared for us and loved us. We recognize, Father, that there is no, no families are perfect. None of us are perfect. So we ask you would help us to be the kind of families that you desire. Help us as parents to love our children and to lead our children in all that we do to Christ. And help us to be children who love our parents in the spirit of Christ in all that we do. Help us in all of our family connections to know your grace and mercy, to be people who love and forgive, who show kindness and mercy. Respect one another. Honor one another. We want nothing more than what is best for each other, for what you want. Father, we pray for all the needs that we bring with us today. We come with all kinds of burdens. We pray, Father, that you help us as we may be concerned about the future. Help us to see you. We may be here today with financial concerns. We may be here about relationships that are broken, not what we want, want them to be. Whatever we bring, we pray that you will work miraculously. We pray for people who are grieving today, the pain that comes from loss in our lives. 
and ask that you would, you would bring comfort to us. We pray for all who are struggling with health issues and ask that you would bring healing to them. We thank you, Father, for this church and the ministries of this church. And we are so privileged to, have the, to be able to teach one another and to care for each other and to, to encourage each other. And we pray you'd help us to continue to be this kind of church. We pray for churches around us. We think today of the Valley Wesleyan Church in Canisterega, Pastor Shambaugh. Pour your spirit upon this gathering of believers that they would be united to each other in you. And in that, in that united love, they would bear witness to you in their community and beyond. We pray that you continue to help us as a nation to draw closer to you. We pray for the leaders of our nation, that there would be an ongoing desire for you. We pray for people who who live in places dealing with natural disasters and violence and all the pain of this world. And we ask that you would bring healing and help. And may your church be a visible presence there. We pray this for refugees who deal with so much in life that most of the time is... uh, They have no control over. We ask that you would bring peace and safety and the ability to return home once again. We pray for your church around the world. and We thank you for the Thedes who minister in Haiti and ask you to continue to bless their ministry as they continue to help the Haitian people in so many ways understand you and your creation and what you desire for them. And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in North and South Korea. These are volatile times. We pray for the church in in both of these countries. There's certainly more openness in the South than in the North, but we pray that you will bring, you will help your people to be a presence for you in whichever place they find themselves. We ask, Father, that they will know that they are loved and cared for in very difficult times. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. We pray that the truth and the reality and the power of the resurrected Christ would be our purpose and our motivation every single day. It's in the name of our risen Savior that we pray with the joy and confidence of resurrection people. Amen. The scripture reading today is from John 20, verse 24 to 29. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, You have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, we're happy to see you here this morning in worship, and for those of you to, for whom it's appropriate, happy Mother's Day. Uh, I hope you have an opportunity to, uh, to be with your mother or with your family, and if not, you have a chance to connect in some way today. I hope it's a, a good family day for you. Uh, there are a couple things that I want to, uh, to highlight in your bulletin. Uh, next Sunday, we move to a uh, worship schedule of just two services at 8.30 and 11. So we will not be having the 940 service next week. And you can see on the back of your bulletin a list of the service schedule over the course of the summer. And uh, please take note of that. It does change. Also, uh, next Sunday is a day where we elect leaders of the church and uh, vote on a budget. And uh, there's a copy of the budget on the back table. Feel free to pick up a copy of that. There are ballots posted around. Please be in prayer for that. Also, next week, we are collecting our faith promise uh, pledges. And you can pick up a form if you don't have one. It lists the missionaries that the Faith Promise support. And uh, there's a little form if you can tear off uh, that uh, you can turn in just to give us an indication of, of uh, where we are with, uh, with that. And it's an opportunity to trust God for more beyond what you might typically give to the kingdom uh, as, in as an act of faith. Uh, also, next Sunday night, uh, we have a vision gathering, a dessert vision gathering. And uh, don't have to be a member of the church. If this is the place you call your home church, we'd love to have you be a part of this meeting. And we're just going to do some time of fellowship together. If you have, can bring a dessert or something, that would be great. And we'll also have some conversations, some sharing together as well. There will be child care also. Let me just uh, invite you now for just a moment to uh, stand, share a word of greeting with others here in worship today. Sometimes we don't like to admit it, but all of us wrestle at times with doubts. Doubts about God. Doubts about what God is doing or not doing. I think often our doubts have to do with God's timing. We, we often ask God, why isn't anything happening? Why aren't you answering this prayer? Why so long? I mean, you see it in the prophets over and over again. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? There is something in those questions that that creates the spirit of, is God really going to do what he's promised to do? Is God really going to come through like we think he's going to come through? Is God going to do it? And often it is because the timing isn't what we want or God isn't doing what we want. Or maybe God is letting things happen that we don't want. And in the midst of those questions, in the midst of those difficulties and struggles, there is something in the back of our mind that says, maybe God isn't who he says he is. I don't think God is intimidated by our doubts. 
I think God would rather have honest doubt than dishonest faith. In other words, I think God would rather have us say what we are really thinking and believing. He already knows. He knows our, what we're thinking. He knows our minds. But there is something about saying it that brings validity to, to it and truth to it. And I think God would much rather have us say, God, I am really questioning you right now. I am really struggling to believe in you right now, rather than say we believe in God, but all the time questioning, doubting, wondering. In fact, sometimes the very fact that we acknowledge our doubt is actually a sign that we are closer to faith than we realize. I mean, if you don't have any thoughts of God, if you have no sense of caring what God thinks or God does, if God has no place in your view of how things are in the world, then God can't really disappoint you. God means nothing to you. But the very fact that God, that it feels like God is not doing what we think he should, if, he's, if his timing isn't right or the things that are happening aren't right, and we see God as a part of that... There is something about that that actually says we are close to faith. Because we care about God. We want God to do what God does. And when we encounter this story from John 20, we find Thomas wrestling with doubt and faith. The night of the resurrection... Jesus appears to the disciples. Thomas is not there. The next day, when he, or the, whenever the next time they talk with Thomas, they tell him the whole story. You can imagine how excited they are about it. And, and I can imagine them saying, you look, he, he's going to come back again and then you'll see. And Thomas is saying, I'm not sure I buy this. Really? Risen from the dead? And as the days progress, you can almost hear Thomas saying to them, so... It's been five days. You guys still going to stick with that story? Really? Doesn't make sense to me. And when Jesus does appear a week later, he comes to Thomas and he says, Believe. Believe. I suspect when you hear the word believe, what comes to your mind is, agreement with something. It's, it's mental. I, I agree with that. I, I think that's true. But the reality is, belief is really not so much about reason as it is action. Our actions belie our beliefs, our reason. We can say, I believe all of these things, but if we don't act on them and we don't live in a way that that shows we believe it, I would say maybe we don't really believe it. If I say to you, I believe the world is round, but I'm afraid to get into a boat and sail across the ocean because I'm thinking we might just fall off, maybe I don't really believe the world is round. I can tell you I believe it's round every day, but if I'm not willing to get on a boat and sail, you're probably thinking you don't really believe that. And that's what believe means. It's not just I think about it in my head or I agree with that statement. As important as ideas and doctrine and theology is, 
Ultimately, belief, faith, is about what we do. It reveals what's really going on in our hearts. And at the core of our faith is the resurrection. Thomas doesn't doubt the fact that Jesus died on the cross. What, he, what he's struggling with is Jesus rose from the dead. And, and if we believe Jesus rose from the dead, if we say, I believe that's true, what does it do about how we live? Do we live as if we believe the resurrection is true? Particularly when we're wrestling with doubts and questions and difficulties. Do we believe there is something bigger? Do we believe that Jesus has won when all we can see is that it looks like Jesus has lost? It's hard to believe that because when you look at Jesus' life from the perspective, from the other side of the cross, from the perspective of the disciples on Friday and Saturday, honestly, it looks like Jesus lost. It's only Sunday that changes the picture. And I think far too often we live as if Jesus lost, not that Jesus won. Our clue speaker last fall, A.J. Swoboda, writes in one of his books about growing up on the, on the Willamette River in Oregon and how every year, every winter, it would freeze over for a while. And he says, a little boy, it looked to him like the river had stopped. And it was dead. And his father kept telling him, No, A.J., it just looks like that on the top. But underneath the ice, the river is flowing just as much as it ever did. And every spring, it would thaw out, and there the river would be flowing. But he said, when it's iced over and all you can see is ice, it looks like it's dead. And he said, I had to come to the place where I could understand, I could believe, I would believe that the river is still flowing even though I can't see it. And there is a sense of resurrection in that kind of perspective. That even when we can't see it, even when it looks like everything is lost, do we believe that Jesus wins? If we do, if we believe that Jesus wins, it changes how we, how we think about how Jesus lives. We often will pray in... in in our worship, the, the Lord's Prayer, and one of the phrases of the Lord's Prayer is, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And the more I think about that, the more significant that phrase becomes to me. If we truly believe the resurrection is what Jesus says it is, if it's really true and it changes everything, then we begin to live our lives as if the kingdom coming on earth is the greatest thing we could ever imagine. We live our lives wanting the dynamics of the kingdom to be true. Wanting the the reality of Jesus to be true. How Jesus describes the kingdom, how Jesus teaches about the kingdom, how Jesus lives out the kingdom, we want that to be true as opposed to our own views of the kingdom being true. I was reading earlier this week, someone said that, that uh, it's important, it's essential to understand that Jesus is central, always central to everything written in the scriptures. And faith in Jesus accepts that. It accepts the fact that everything in scripture points to Jesus and is about Jesus. He's a central part of that. And I think that's true. I just don't think it goes far enough. 
I think it's more than just accepting that. I think it's wanting that. That's faith. Wanting it. We can say, we, we can accept the fact that Jesus is central to everything with our arm pulled behind our back saying, Uncle. But we might not want it. Faith is wanting it. We want the kingdom to look as Jesus describes it, as Scripture tells us, as Jesus lives it. And that means we want the Beatitudes to be the way to live. That we are blessed when we're poor in spirit and merciful instead of vindictive. And we mourn the the pain and the agony of the world even if it doesn't touch us. And we are humble and we're willing to be persecuted. And the whole Sermon on the Mount It sort of summarizes everything Jesus says and does that we want the kingdom to be about going the extra mile and turning the other cheek and thinking more about the log sticking out of our eye than the speck in somebody else's eye. We want all of that to be true. We want the way of the cross to be the way of life because that's what Jesus says. And that's what Jesus does. And believing in Jesus is not just saying, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. It is living the nature, the purpose, the power, the motivation of the kingdom as Jesus describes it. But even that's not quite enough. I think it's one more step. And that is, if you, if you want the kingdom to be as Jesus describes it, if you believe the resurrection is true then to really believe in Jesus is to live all in with Jesus. And to live all in with Jesus means that we live a life of risk for Jesus. We trust. The minute you start talking about risk, you're talking about the possibility of loss and pain and difficulty. We really shouldn't expect it to be any different because look at where risk ended up for Jesus. To be all in for Jesus means that, what, that whatever he wants, that's what we want. Whatever he calls us to do, we do. You read the scriptures, particularly look at the parables of Jesus. And over and over again, Jesus says, the people who risk for the master are rewarded even if it means the potential for loss and pain and difficulty across. It's it's what it means to believe. It's all of life. It's the decisions we make. It's not just what we think. It's not just some theological statement that we say we believe because we don't really believe it if it doesn't have some bearing on how we live. And the call of the gospel and the call of Jesus is to say, to live, I believe, all in. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's what we see in Thomas. I mean, ultimately, when Thomas gets a vision of Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God, all in. It's an amazing thing for him to say because you would think that Thomas might say, look, I've been saying all week, I don't believe this. I don't, I don't want to lose face and now just say, okay, now I believe it. But he does. I think it reveals his heart. A heart of, of faith and belief that just needed a nudge. 
was thinking this week, why, why wasn't Thomas with the other disciples on resurre- the resurrection night? Why wasn't he there? I'd never really thought of that before. And Scripture doesn't tell us. But I suspect it's one of two things. It, it might be because he was more frightened than all the other disciples. And so even just being in Jerusalem, in that upper room, though the doors were locked, it was just too frightening for him. And so he's out somewhere outside the city, maybe over the Jordan River, hiding in a cave someplace. But the other thought is maybe he wasn't there because he's more courageous than the other disciples. Maybe it's because he's they're looking around saying, we need some food. Somebody's got to get us something to eat. And Thomas says, I'll do it. And he walks in, out to Jerusalem, walks into the market, buys the food they need, the other supplies, aware of the fact that if somebody spots him, it could, be, it could be dangerous for him. He's like, I don't care, I'm going to do it. Maybe he has some connections in the temple or connections with the Romans, and he's going to go out and find out what exactly is happening here. What's going on in the city? How, do, how, how are we supposed to respond? What, are they looking for us? But he has, this, he has courage, and I don't know the answer to that, but I suspect it's the second rather than the first, because the minute he sees that it's Jesus, he responds in worship. His heart is open to Jesus. He just needs the nudge. And what is the nudge? It's, it's the wounds of Jesus. I would have expected Jesus to appear and say, it's me, and I'll prove it to you, and do some miracles. I expect him, he would have said, look, remember all my successes. Remember all the power I had. Remember all the great things I did. Remember everything. But he doesn't. The only thing he says to them is, look at my wounds. Touch them. See them. It's all about the wounds. And those wounds open Thomas's eyes to Jesus. It's not a coincidence that Isaiah writes, by his wounds, not his successes, we are healed. By his wounds, not his power, we are healed. By his wounds, not his miracles, we are healed. As important as everything else is, can he do miracles? Yes. Does he have power? All of it. But it's by his wounds that we are healed. And the wounds open up Thomas's eyes. And I can't help but think that since the church is the living, visible presence of Jesus in this world, that maybe... Maybe it's our woundedness that opens the eyes of people to Jesus. I don't want it to be that way, quite frankly. I want success to open the eyes of people to Jesus. I want power to open the eyes of people to Jesus. I want, I want great influence to open the eyes of people to Jesus. But that doesn't seem to be the way of Jesus. It's his wounds. And if that's how people see Jesus, his wounds, doesn't it make sense that people will probably more likely than not see Jesus in us by our woundedness and our brokenness and our vulnerability? The fact that we live our lives all in with Jesus, the fact that we're willing to risk for Jesus, puts us in a vulnerable place. And we will be mistreated 
and manipulated and used. And we will be hurt and wounded. We live our lives trying to avoid that. It's what we do. It's human nature. And I think that's one of the reasons why it sets us apart from everybody else is because everybody else is saying, how little can I be wounded and still survive? And the call of the gospel is, I'm willing to be wounded as you want in order to bear witness to Jesus. And that's where we keep coming back to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of the Scripture. It's that all-in kind of faith and trust. It changes everything. At this vision gathering next Sunday night, along with some time for fellowship and singing and worship, we're going to spend some time just thinking and talking about what does it mean for us as a church to believe like this? What does it mean for us as a church to be all-in with Jesus, How does that shape what we do with each other and how we bear witness to Jesus and the, and the things that we do or maybe the things that we don't do? What does that look like? How does that shape who we are? When we ask the question, to believe in Jesus means for us to fill in the blank. And I think it's going to be very illuminating to think about corporately how we, not just individually, but together as the church, reveal the nature of Jesus to each other and to other people. And to come to the place where we are so all in with Jesus that we are willing to risk the vulnerability of woundedness for the kingdom. And we can do that Because we believe the resurrection is true. The cross is awesome. But without the resurrection, it's a dead end. And our wounds are awesome. But without the resurrection, they're a dead end. It's the resurrection that brings life to our woundedness. That brings purpose and meaning to our brokenness and our vulnerability and our risk. And until we believe that we worship the God who conquered death and everything else, we will never truly live all in with Jesus. Because the reality is life is hard. And we're going to deal with difficulties. There are many times where we're going to question and doubt and wonder and struggle. And in those moments, what kind of people will we be? What will we look like? I brought with me a couple of things this morning from my childhood. One of them is an Etch-a-Sketch. You guys have probably used an Etch-a-Sketch at some point in your life. You twist these dials and you make pictures. I brought a few pictures with you with me today of some things that, that I've, I've drawn on the Etch-a-Sketch. I think we have some pictures that we can pop up there. Maybe we don't. Yeah, some things that I've drawn with the etch sketch I'm a, I'm a little offended by the laughter, to be honest with you. No, actually, that's more like something I would do with an Etch-a-Sketch, only that's actually a little advanced for, my t- for what I can be able to accomplish, to be honest with you. Usually, stair steps are about the best I could ever do with it. But, you know, you, the, this thing was invented in 1960. And I don't, know, I don't know how it works. I was reading about it. It made no sense to me. But uh, they have these little beads in there, chemical reactions, and you draw these things, and, and you create pictures with it. 
The other thing I brought with me is a Polaroid camera. This actually was invented in 1947. I did not realize it had been around that long. But a Polaroid camera is sort of the precursor to digital photography. You get instant pictures. That's why it was invented. You didn't have to take your film to some store to have it developed. You could take the picture and it would come out and you pull it out and you peel it off. And the thing about the pictures that come out of a Polaroid camera are they, when they first start, they're just blank. And after about 30, 60 seconds, maybe two minutes, a picture begins to slowly emerge on there until you see it. This is a Polaroid shot. I was thinking about these two things because I was reading in one of A.J. Swoboda's books about this. And he said, he talked about the fact that the one thing that, is in, that you have in common with these two things is that they're both shaken to work. With an Etch-A-Sketch, once you draw a picture, in order to start over again, to draw another picture, you shake it. And when you shake it, it clears the screen. If you never shake it, it's just a jumble of stuff. Shake it to clear it. And with Polaroid pictures, even though now they're saying you shouldn't shake it, but when I was young and people had Polaroid cameras, you pulled it out, you peeled off the paper, and you sat there doing this. You just do this for 60 seconds or so. And, you, and we all thought that helped the picture develop. I think maybe originally it might have, but that's what everybody did. And here's the thing. Life shakes us. You can't help it. Stuff happens. We get disappointed. We struggle. And the question is, what kind of faith are we going to have in the midst of shaking? Are we going to end up with a faith that is blurred and disappears? Or faith that emerges into a beautiful picture? I'm convinced that the result of the shaking comes back to, do we believe, truly believe, are we all in that Jesus is risen? Father, I pray that you will give us the kind of faith that brings blessing and joy and your your transforming power. Like Thomas, we would cry out, my Lord and my God, in worship. We ask this through Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing together.
sons, we are the daughters of
receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.